Welcome to the Living Rock Podcast. We're so glad that you're joining us to listen to this message. Whoever you are and wherever you're listening from, we trust that you'll be equipped, envisioned and encouraged as you listen today. This morning, I'm really pleased to tell you that we're going to start uh, a new teaching series this morning pleased to know. It's one that's been on my heart for a while. There it is. (laughs) We've been thinking over the last few months that we would like to um, spend some time in the book of Romans. It's one of my favorite places in the scripture to go. And um, I really believe over the next few months that the Lord is going to speak to you personally. He's going to show you new things in the word and it's going to be fantastic. It's going to be a great journey together. What we're going to be doing at the same time is uh, we're going to be having a reading plan that will accompany um, our time in Romans. Um, and this morning, I'm going to hand these out in a minute, but we've got some snazzy bookmarks for you. This is your Romans reading plan. Um, it's very easy to remember. It's one chapter a week. <laughs> There's 16 chapters, 16 weeks. There you go. So even if you lose your bookmark... <laughs> Just ask someone else what number week we're on, and that's the chapter you should be reading in the week. And also to accompany that, we're going to be issuing an email to all those of you who are already on the email distribution list um, every week, um, which will be um, some thoughts on the chapter for that week, um, and uh, just to sort of set you off for the week, really, like a little mini devotional. There'll also be a link in the email to take you to a Bible app for that particular chapter, Uh, And we're going to be revolving the translations that we use. So we're starting with the NIV on Monday. uh, That's tomorrow. And then the week after, there'll be a different translation. So those of you who favor the electronic device, want to read on that, we've catered for you too on this occasion. So there's no excuse that you didn't have your Bible with you when you got the email. um, Because if you've got your phone, it'll take you straight to the Word. uh, And that's what matters. Praise God. (laughs) We really hope that when we spend time in this book, that there's going to be a great revelation that will come to us. In fact, you'll see there's a, if you just go back to the previous slide, previous slide, there we go, revelation and revolution. That's the subtitle for the series, if you like. We believe that there's going to be a revelation in our hearts of God's purposes, of our place in those purposes, and why the message that we carry is so revolutionary in the world. And I believe that a revelation in your heart will lead to a revolution in your actions. And ultimately, a revolution in our mission and the way that we carry out the mission that Jesus has given us. So are you up for that? Fantastic. That's a good start. (laughs) So what I'm going to do just to start with is um, the way the morning is going to be divided. Um, I'm going to spend the first 15 minutes or so giving you an introduction to the book of Romans. So a little bit of background about Romans. Then we're going to have about a two, three minute leg stretch and I'm going to give you a question to consider and just to discuss with maybe the person sitting next to you while we hand out your um, reading plan bookmarks. And then when we've done that, we'll sit down again and then I'm just going to talk on three main themes this morning, uh, which I think are burning issues of our time and which the book of Romans addresses really well for us and really equips us in knowing if you like the answers to those sorts of questions. So I'm going to start with um, what people say about the book of Romans. I was thinking about this, thinking, well, 
You know, if you read any book, I don't know about you, but I like to pick up a book and then I look at the dust jacket um, and then there's usually quotes by other authors about this particular book, about what they found in it, how they found it. And I've pulled out a few quotes on the book of Romans. So if you just want to go to the first quote, there you go. This is by Martin Luther. I'm sure you've heard of Martin Luther. He was a 16th century reformer, very um, influential, uh, obviously, in the church at the time. He said this, It is the chief part of the New Testament and the perfect gospel, the absolute epitome of the gospel. This is the book of Romans. If you go to the next one, this is G. Campbell Morgan. He's a fantastic writer. Not many people seem to read um, his stuff, but I found his stuff in the last few years to be really, really helpful. He was a 20th century evangelist, and he said this, the most pessimistic page of literature upon which your eyes ever rested, and at the same time, the most optimistic poem to which your ears ever listened. And the next one is Robert Haldane. Now, Robert Haldane was a a 19th century um, Scottish theologian, And by many theologians, he's considered to have written one of the best commentaries on the book of Romans. So for any of you that, during this reading series, like to go a little deeper and maybe like to turn to a commentary, if you can get hold of Robert Haldane's commentary on Romans, it is absolutely brilliant. He said this, It is the only part of scripture which contains a detailed and systematic exhibition of the doctrines of Christianity. The great truths which are embodied and inculcated in every other part of the Bible, are here brought together in a condensed and comprehensive form. Inculcated is not a word you hear very often these days. It simply means just to embed something by repetitive learning. And then the next one is Tom Wright, more recent quote for you. Tom Wright, otherwise known as N.T. Wright, he was the former um, Bishop of Durham um, up until about 2010. He's considered to be one of the preeminent New Testament scholars of our day. And he said this, I love this quote, he said, Paul's letter to the Romans stands like Shakespeare's Hamlet or Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, the masterwork of a master craftsman. In this letter, Paul creates a tradition of Christian thought where none had existed before. That's the significance of when Paul wrote this letter. And lastly, John Calvin, who's a 16th century French theologian, wrote a very famous work called The Institutes of Religion, He said this, when anyone understands this epistle, he has a passage open to him to the understanding of the whole scripture. Did you hear that? So when you have an understanding of the book of Romans, it opens up the rest of the scriptures for you. So that's high praise indeed, isn't it, for the book of Romans? That's why I love it. It's a great book. So we're going to start with now um, a little bit of background, and we'll do the W. So who, when, what, why, whom, and where. And I'm going to start with who. So who wrote the uh, epistle to the Romans? Any clues for guessing? Paul. Paul. There we go. Everyone knows. It's Paul the Apostle. He declared it was his work. There's no quibble about that whatsoever. When was it written? We think it was written somewhere between AD 55 and 57. So if you, for those of you that were here when I spoke about Antioch, when everything was happening in Antioch and uh, Paul and Barnabas were sent out from there, that was around about the mid-40s. We've now gone forward 10 years. Uh, Paul is on his missionary journeys. And it's around about Acts 20 when Paul's um, staying in Corinth. Uh, And in the the narrative, we're told he's taking up a a collection for the saints in Jerusalem. And we think it was around about this time that he wrote this letter to Rome. 
Uh, and in it, he was declaring, certainly in the introduction, that he was longing to get to Rome to see them. What did he write? Well, if you were to carve up the 16 chapters, I would carve them up this way. The first four chapters deal with the problem of sin and unrighteousness. It's like a, a diagnosis of a problem. The next four chapters deal with God's, not only his prognosis, but also his prescription for that problem. And God's righteousness is introduced, and the concept of the righteousness that we've received from Christ. So it's God's means of victory over the problem of sin. Then Paul takes a three-chapter sidebar. When Paul takes a slight sidebar, it does go on for a few chapters, usually because it's really important, to talk about Israel and say, well, where does this leave the Old Testament people of God? And to deal with that as an issue. And then in the last few chapters, 12 through 16, Paul then gets into some of the practicalities of this righteousness. How do we work it out together? You see, when Paul writes, he will often take us up into the heavenlies and declare eternal truths to us, but he always takes us back down to earth and says, okay, how do we now walk that? In light of that, how do we live every day? How do we walk it all out? Why did he write it? This is a letter, remember. We have to remember when we're reading the New Testament, we're reading people's correspondence. It's Holy Scripture, but it's also personal correspondence. Some people feel that Paul wrote the letter because there were people he wanted to send greetings to in the church in Rome, that there's some personal elements to it. But also, quite clearly, it's a, a big, definitive, doctrinal statement. And we saw that in the quotes that we've just heard. That this is Paul setting down, in some people's opinion, for the first time at that time, a clear and unequivocal statement of the doctrine of the church. So these are important truths that Paul is laying down. And we saw when in Antioch, when Barnabas came into Antioch and then brought Saul, as he was called then, alongside himself, what they were doing was laying the foundations properly in each of the churches. And that's the hallmark of Paul. Wherever he went, he ensured that the foundations were laid properly so that the church could grow well. Whom was it written to? Well, the people involved, we don't know much about how the church started in Rome. Um, in Acts 2 and verse 10, it describes that on the day of Pentecost, those that came from other parts of the empire that were Jews there for the Passover. And it talks about visitors from Rome. And it's likely, like the visitors from um, Antioch and places like that, that those people left and they went back to where they came from. And maybe, like the people in Antioch, the people that started the church there, they were people who took the initiative and simply told people about Jesus. You know, the wonderful thing about the Antiochans is that they had what I would call a conversational gospel. Their gospel was just in the everyday chit-chat to people that they met wherever they went. And maybe these people in Rome, they did the same thing, and a church was born there, uh, and Paul longed to go. So in the first chapter, we see Paul saying, look, I really, I can't come to you right now because I've got these other things to do, but I'm longing to come to you because I know I'm going to be a blessing to you, and I know you're going to bless me too. So the church in Rome had something that Paul knew would be a blessing to him, but he also knew that they needed his apostolic input, his apostolic instruction, and his apostolic revelation. And that's what we've got in this letter to them. This is him saying, I'm coming to you, but in the meantime, I'm sending you this, my apostolic revelation, what God's shown me about his great plan and what it means for the world at this time. That's why it's such a fantastic letter that we have. Praise the Lord. And lastly, just to say that Paul did get to Rome. 
eventually. Maybe not the way he thought he'd get there, um, because he was a prisoner when he arrived, and he was in, under house arrest in Rome for about two years. So by the time you get to Acts 28, it describes Paul being in Rome. He had to rent a house when he was there. He was under house arrest, awaiting trial for two years. But during that time, he was allowed visitors, and many people came to see him, and it didn't restrict him so much in being able to minister um, to other people and to, to impart the revelation that God had given him. The last question is, where were the Romans? Okay, that's an easy one. They were in Rome. But Rome's a really important place. When we see these letters, we have to understand where they were written to, where the church was. The church in Antioch was a really important place. It was of strategic importance. The church in Rome was in the most important place as far as the reach of the empire was concerned. It was a massive empire, the biggest on earth at the time. And at the epicenter of this empire is this city with all of its power and wealth. And right in the middle of it is this group of people, this church, this representation of Christ. They carried a gospel that was at odds with all the values of the empire in which they lived. This is the church that Paul is writing to. Features of Roman society would have included lots of gods and worship of gods. When the Romans built their empire, they had a way of building which was to basically take on board the cultures of every place that they conquered. Instead of trying to make everybody Roman, they made them Roman citizens, but they let them keep elements of their culture to try and keep populations under control and thereby have an extensive empire. That meant that culturally speaking, they would import in the case of the Greek empire which preceded it, the Romans imported many of the Greek gods and just gave them Roman names. So people were still worshipping the same false gods, but just by a different name. They also inherited an obsession with outward beauty. The Greeks and the, the Greek culture is obsessed with outward beauty and youth. And as part of that, an extension of that with sexuality to be expressed in as many different ways as possible, and the Romans inherited that and embraced it. So actually we have in the heart of Roman culture a sexuality which is without limits. There's no question of heterosexual and homosexual. There's no limits whatsoever. For the Romans, sex could be with anyone. I don't mean to be crude, I'm just trying to paint a picture of what society was like before the gospel arrived. There was no limit to sexuality. In fact, sexuality was usually based on dominance. The more powerful you were, the more you were able to appease your sexual appetite and expand your sexual appetite. So it wasn't a healthy culture when it came to attitudes to sex. And it was also based on self-gratification. The more powerful you were, the more you could gratify your own desires. There was no emphasis on pleasing others certainly in that arena. And with that came power and wealth and a massive hierarchy and inequality in society. Wealth was concentrated amongst the most wealthy in society. Does any of this sound familiar to you? It's got a ring of familiarity to it, hasn't it? You know, I really want us all to take a historical view of where we are right now. Because we, in the last hundred years or so, have rolled back the influence of a gospel in this country that came and changed the culture and turned it upside down. 
So when people talk about modern attitudes in the, all these areas I've just talked about, there is nothing modern about them. It's all pre-Christian. And we need to tell the truth to people to say, yeah, I understand all that. It's all been done before, and it was all before the gospel came. And you need to know that. Don't be fooled into thinking this is modern. It's all been done before. And we also need to be bold like the church was at the time. It didn't stop them from going out. They had a gospel that completely cut across all those areas. But they had confidence to take it out because they knew people weren't happy. Not really. And they could take a message of hope out. And I want to talk about that as we go through. And there are three issues that I think are burning questions of the day at the moment. They're being discussed by social commentators. They're being discussed on current affairs programs, on news programs, and across society. And I've tried to sort of summarize them in three different questions. The first one is this. Who am I? The issue of identity is a huge issue at this present time. Who am I? It's coming into our politics, about what politics we identify with. There's a polarization coming as people are being drawn to a more extreme version of what they thought before, looking for identity. It's coming into issues of sexuality and now into issues of gender, what my identity is, who am I? It's coming into issues like nationalism, not just in this country, but across the world. Second question is, what am I here for? In other words, what's my purpose? What's my role? People are asking the question, what is my role in society? What's my role in the workplace? What's my role in the home? Where do I come from? What's my origin? What's my tribe? There's a rise of tribalism in society at the minute. And people looking to belong to something, to belong to anything, clinging on to things, desperate for some purpose in their life. And the last question is this, what does the future hold for me? A lot of people feel a constant anxiety that hangs over them about their future. And obviously in this country, we've had two years of anticipation of something that's come ever closer for us and has added to that anxiety. But it's not just here and it's not just that issue. People are concerned about their future. They're concerned what it looks like. They're concerned about the future of the planet. They're concerned about the future economically about the divide between the rich and the poor and, and when that will end. People are worried about the future and what it holds for them. This book that Paul has written answers all of those questions because it lays out God's answer to all those questions. And I believe that the gospel we carry firmly answers all three of those questions. The first issue is identity. Who are we? And knowing who you are starts with knowing who God is. When you understand who God is, that's the beginning of you understanding who you are. In fact, the more you come to know him over your life, the more you will know about yourself. The more you will understand about yourself and come to terms with who you are. Identity starts with God. Could you read with me Romans 1? I'm going to turn to verses 18 to 25. So Paul is just, in this opening chapter, he starts with a few greetings, talks about wanting to come and visit. 
And in the couple of verses prior to this one, he's talked about the gospel. He makes this bold statement and he says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Now, this is Paul's writing style. He'll make a big, bold statement and then he'll say, Now I'm going to explain it to you. What we come to in verse 18 is the beginning of Paul's explanation of that statement. He starts in verse 18 and says this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the, the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So in these few verses, 18 through to 25, Paul is setting out his initial diagnosis. This is what's gone wrong with the world. There's no point treating the symptoms. Let's go back to the cause. This is the cause of the problem. Paul explains to us that the creature is created by a creator. And the creator has revealed enough of himself in his creation to cause us to know that we need him. He says that they had enough to know that they needed him. But instead, men and women chose an image of him instead of God himself. And then when we get to verse 25, he says this, they did it because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. So if we get right to the crux of the matter now. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. So what do you think the truth about God was? just want you to think about that for a second. What was the truth about God that they exchanged for a lie? Well, we know what the lie was. We know that the lie was that they could rely on and look to and worship something that was created instead of the creator. So the truth was the inverse of that. The truth was the opposite of that. That actually they depended upon him for everything. And that he, as we've sang this morning, was worthy of worship. And the reason for this is because all life is sourced in him. And this is a fundamental thing about the nature of God that we need to understand. It affects everything in our life. It affects the way we live our life. It affects the way we worship God. Worship is not coming to God and just saying nice things about him. Worship is not coming to God and trying to make him feel better about himself. Worship is not coming to God and giving him worship and glory and honor because that's how he gets his power. Worship is coming to God and seeing who he is and it's a natural reaction because we came from him 
and everything we have is sourced in him. Without him, we would die. This whole earth right now would die, but God is sustaining it. The word tells us that the universe is sustained by the power of his word, that Christ is upholding the whole universe. In Colossians, Paul writes to the the church there, and he says, look, everything that's made was made through him and for him and by him. And then he says, and all things hold together in him. That means literally, at the smallest possible level, all matter, created matter in the universe, is held together by Jesus. And that's because when God made creation, he used Jesus as his pattern for making creation. You know, scientists have been looking for many years for the smallest particle. You know, they called it the God particle. They've gone down to the subatomic level and they're going smaller and smaller to say, what makes the universe? They called it the God particle because they thought at the root and heart of everything, the very fabric of creation is embedded with the code of Christ. And it's for that reason that all of creation rises to Christ when he shows himself. It's our natural reaction. So when you and I got saved, we were able to come into the throne room for the first time. We were able to come in without sin getting in the way, unashamed, covered in the blood of Jesus. And we were able to see him with unveiled faces and see that glory. We came home. It's the place where we were created to be. But man and women decided that they were going to instead turn away from him and say, we don't need you. We will look to created things, things shaped by our own imagination, and we'll worship those things. You know, when mankind did that, mankind immediately limited themselves to whatever they could imagine. Mankind has done wonderful things. You know, we landed on the moon. What an amazing feat that was. That came out of man's imagination. Have you ever thought what would happen if man wasn't limited to his imagination? Because that was God's intention for us. God is beyond all you can ask and imagine. His power is greater than all of that. And that was his intention for mankind. But they chose instead to limit themselves to something that they could just imagine. A poor replica of who he was. And the natural consequence of that was to say, well, if we don't need him, we don't need to stay within the boundaries that he has set us. And this is what happened in Eden, is that Satan came to Adam and Eve and he said, God has told you not to do this, but did God really say that? And he questions his word. And then he says, are you going to, what he's saying to them is, are you going to stay within that boundary that God set you? Hmm, Maybe I won't. Well, if you step outside of that boundary, what's going to happen? So he caused them to doubt the power of God and the word of God that it would lead to death. And then he caused them to, ca- to disbelieve God's goodness towards them. He questioned God's motives. God doesn't want you to taste of the fruit of that tree because he knows it'll make you like him. He's just trying to contain you. That was the lie that the devil told Adam and Eve. And you know what? He's carried on telling that lie to mankind throughout all its history so that mankind turns away from God, says, no, he's just a party pooper. He's the one that wants to keep us down. We need to set our own boundary lines. We need to determine our own course and our own history and our own destiny. 
Go with me to Ephesians 4. Because in Ephesians 4, Paul drops a little line in. And, you know, as you go through the Word, I just want to encourage you that sometimes when you read different things and they'll just stand out to you, I want to encourage you to pause at that point because I believe the Holy Spirit's got revelation for you. And sometimes it can be just a throwaway line, seemingly throwaway line. So if you go to Ephesians 4 and verse 25, it says this. So the context of this is Paul's talking about putting off the old and putting on the new. And specifically, in verse 23, he says, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, that your minds would come into line with your new nature in Christ Jesus. And he says in verse 25, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Now, if you translate that literally, it means having once for all put off the lie. Having once for all put off the lie. You see, there is a lie at the heart of creation that the devil told about God, his intentions towards us, our need for him, and who he fundamentally is. And when we come to Christ, we put off that lie. Our eyes are opened and we see him for who he is, the good God the good father that he is, the one who has only our best intentions in mind, who only sets boundaries in our life to keep us in green pastures and in the place where we will thrive rather than stepping out of those places and going to a place that leads ultimately to death. That was the lie that's been told about God for thousands of years. And Paul is saying, you put off that lie. Praise God. It starts with a revelation of who God is but that gives us a revelation of who we are. We were made to be dependent upon him, to enjoy fellowship with him, and ultimately to enjoy his love and his care. So if we go back to Romans, Romans 3.23, I've got some references here. I'm going to read them out. You don't have to turn to them all. We find as we go through Romans, Paul then starts to say, okay, What's the diagnosis here? What's the prognosis? Well, in Romans 3.23, he says that all have fallen short of the glory of God. It starts with recognizing who we've become. That none of us can please God anymore because we've turned away from him and sin has come into the world. When we get to Romans 5, Paul then starts to talk about Adam being part of the race of Adam. And he said, we've put off Adam, we've let go of Adam, and we've embraced Christ. Now we're part of the race of Christ. We've become a new species on the earth. We find our identity no longer in Adam, but we find our identity in Christ. And you know that dependence, that dependent relationship that we were just looking at, of creature with creator, that dependence is actually found between father and son. Jesus lived a life fully dependent upon the father. It didn't make him weak. It made him strong. And when we come to Christ and Christ is our identity, that's therefore how we need to live. We needed to live every day fully dependent upon him, moment by moment, sustained by him, because moment by moment you are sustained by the blood of Christ. It's not what just made you pure and holy when you first made that decision. It's what makes you pure and holy right now. That blood is interceding for you and will forever throughout all of eternity. 
And then when we get to Romans 8, he starts the chapter and talks about coming into a freedom from condemnation. Because we've come to Christ and we've become part of him, we cannot be condemned anymore. All that he has achieved is now ours. We've inherited it. And then as he goes through the chapter, Paul starts to talk about going from slavery to sonship. We've become the children of God. And because of that, we inherit from God, just as Christ has. That is our identity, children of God. You know, when Jesus rose at the end of the, um, John's Gospel, Mary Magdalene comes into the tomb and she sees the clothes folded up and she sees the angels and she thinks, where's Jesus? Where's my Lord? And she turns round and Jesus is standing there. And at first she doesn't recognise him until he says, Mary. And then she sees him in all his glory. And he says, your father and my father, your God and my God. We've become children of the Father with Jesus. We've become his brothers and sisters. The second question, therefore, is what are we here for? What's our purpose, in other words? And again, this begins with God. Any question you want to ask of the Scriptures, you know what? It usually begins with God and who he is. It begins in understanding God's plan and purpose for this creation. That's how we understand our purpose, because then we start to understand what we're here for, our part in it, and what we're called to do. The first thing to say this is that we are integral to God's purposes. Isn't that wonderful? We're not a sideshow. We're not a throwaway thing. We are integral, and we are at the heart of God's purposes, and we always have been. When God made the earth, he made man as the pinnacle of creation because man was formed in his image. We more fully reflect his nature than anything else on the earth. If you just go back to Romans 1, and I just want to draw your attention to verse 20. Because Paul says something interesting here. He says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So Paul is telling us that God's eternal power and his divine nature are seen in the things that have been made. Why were they made? To show his divine nature and his eternal power. To display his eternal power power and his divine nature and you and I are at the pinnacle of that because we were made in his image so our purpose here on this earth is to display that aspect of God's nature I believe what Paul's talking about here is the glory of God his eternal power that power that made the universe by the power of his word you and I are here to display that You might say, well, how how can I display the glory of Almighty God? We'll come to that. But we see that man exchanged that glory that he was destined to display for created things. You know, it was kind of a de-evolution that took place. Man took a lower place than he was created for. 
In Ephesians 2 and verse 10, it talks about us being created in Christ. So when we get to the New Testament, it's like a recreation of the world again. God starts creating the world, but through his son, just like he created all things that we see. And it talks about us as being his workmanship. His workmanship. You know the word that Paul uses there when he writes that is poema, which means poem. It simply means the expression of a creator. And that's where we get our English word poem from. It's just an expression, a lyrical expression. And that's what we are. We are an expression of God's heart. And our purpose here is to reflect God's glory. Now, Moses reflected God's glory when he was with him up the mountain. But he came back down the mountain, and although there was a glow of glory about him, after a few hours, that faded. But you and I can have a permanent glow of glory about us because we don't have to go up a mountain just to see him. He's living within us. And that's how we start to display God's glory to the world around us. It's not a temporary glory. Paul says to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18, he says this, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We're being transformed into the same image as the glory of the Lord. You're being transformed into the same image as the glory of the Lord. As you become more like Christ, you're still you. But there's more the aroma of Christ about you now. Glory will emanate from you. You say, well, I don't feel like I'm a shine. I don't feel like there's light shining out of me when I walk around. That's because you're just looking with these. But glory is unseen. We're talking about spiritual things that have an impact on the physical world. And corporately, we are the display of God's glory. In Ephesians again, Paul says, um, God's purpose in all this, this is Ephesians 3 and verse 10, God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Hallelujah. That's why we're here, folks. Together, that's why we come together. We come together to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. You know, Fiona said this earlier on. We don't see a lot of what's happening around us when we come into worship. Paul's telling us right here what's happening. And my prayer, whenever we come together, I say to the Holy Spirit, will you show me? Will you show me what's happening right now? And I'm getting glimpses of what's happening in the heavenlies. And I want to encourage you to ask the Lord. Show me, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. Let me see this glory I'm singing about. Don't be satisfied not to see it. Don't let anyone tell you that you're not spiritual enough. Don't let anyone tell you you're not gifted enough. You can see it. In fact, it's God's wish for you to see it. He wants your heart to be so full of it that you feel you're going to burst on the spot. That's what the Lord wants when we come together. And that is the display of his glory. And we'll express that in different ways. And that variety which is expressed across this body is a display of God's wisdom and his glory. That's how he's going to do it. And I want to encourage you to be hungry. Don't settle for anything less. Don't settle for what's predictable and boring and routine. Say, I want to see your glory, Lord. Because the Spirit's hungry to show us. He just wants to see that hunger in us. 
Hallelujah. You know, Paul says in Romans 5 and verse 2, he said, once we've been redeemed, he said, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What does that mean? Well, the NLT very helpfully renders it this way. We confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. When we came to him, we now start to share God's glory because we emanate the same glory. When Jesus prayed for the church in John 17, he says, Father, I want them to share the glory that you and I shared before the foundation of the world. God shared the glory with himself, but he created us to come and share that glory with him, to be part of this great relationship between the three. It's what Wesley called the sweet society, the Godhead. And that begins when we get saved, because it reveals him as a restorer. You know, earlier in Romans, in Romans 4 and verse 17, Paul is talking about Abraham, and he talks about Abraham believing what God has told him, and he talks about God who gives life to the dead and calls into being the things that were not. There's a glimpse there of God's very nature. He gives life to the dead and calls into being the things that were not. How is that not a description of you and me? We were dead, now we're alive. We weren't his children. He called us into being as his children now. We were lost and orphaned, but he's brought us home. And in that, we are revealing him as a restorer, and that is bringing glory to him. That is what we're here for. I think we need a revelation of our purpose in revealing his glory and what that means, and I think it will transform our gospel. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Sometimes a gospel can be need-centered. And the gospel will meet your needs. But that's not the end of the gospel. It's not the end at all. The glory of God is the end of the gospel. He came that his own glory would be upheld. That his own nature would be on display in what he did. And we need a glory-centered gospel and not a need-centered gospel. A need-centered gospel will be the one that takes someone who's a pauper in spiritual terms and brings them in and gives them a meal. A glory-centered gospel will take the same person and say, you don't just get a meal, you get royal robes put upon you. You get a seat at the table of the king and you've been made a child of the king. You'll never need another person to give you a meal again because you'll be fed from this table forevermore. That's the difference between a need-centered gospel and a glory-centered gospel. My question is, what's your gospel about? What's the gospel that you're carrying? What is the gospel we're carrying out to the world? Because I believe it's a message of dignity, of where people have come from, what they were created for, and their destiny as royalty before the king, to be dressed in royal robes. It's to lift the heads of the downcast and to show them what they, were, what they were made for, to share the glory of God and to enjoy it. Last question. Where are we going then? What does the future hold for us? Well, guess what? It begins in him again. Every question, the answer always starts with him. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He bookends our whole existence he was there before it began. He knew us before we were even thought of. And he'll be there at the end. He's our beginning and our end. Our future is tied to his future in eternity. 
In fact, our future is anchored into eternity. In Colossians 1 and verse 5, you don't need to turn to this, because I'm going to read it from the message, but it says this, the lines of purpose in your lives never grow slack, tied tightly as they are to your future in heaven, kept taut by hope. I'm going to read that one more time, because it's imbued with a lot of imagery and a lot of meaning. You ready? The lines of purpose in your lives never grow slack, tied tightly as they are to your future in heaven and kept taut by hope. It's good, isn't it? What Paul is saying there is that our lives are not driven and shouldn't be driven by temporal priorities, but they should be driven by eternal priorities. It's not saying that we just hang on for eternity. Actually, my future's in eternity, so I'll just wait for the Lord to come back. It's saying everything I do here, there is a line that runs from me into eternity, and it's tied tightly, and it's pulling me. As Paul said, he's called me heavenwards, and that's the thing that's driving me every day, the fact that I'm called heavenwards in Christ Jesus. If you let that line grow slack, then you'll just start to wander. The tautness is the thing that pulls you heavenwards, that keeps you moving in the right direction, that stops you wandering off from the path that God has got for your life. What's the thing that keeps it taut? Well, it's hope. It's hope. Our answer to where we're going is that we have a hope. And his name is Jesus. All of our chips are on one thing. Jesus. If he wasn't resurrected, we are lost. Praise God, he was, and we are not. And one day he will come back for us. That is our hope. That is the thing that needs to drive us. That is the thing that will carry us through circumstances and challenges. We have a commission together to make disciples of all nations, but we're pulled heavenwards whilst we're doing it. We we, we need to drag as many people as we can as we go. Grab hold of them as you get pulled heavenwards until they find their own pull on their lives. But what about our personal hopes? You know, earlier on we sang about love being uh, our firm foundation. Do you remember that song? And I think that Paul lays out for us again in Romans, there are two pillars, if you like, that our hope rests upon. And the first one of these is God's faithfulness. So in Romans 8, verses 31 to 32, let's just turn to that for a second, would you? We've got to read these couple of verses because they're just amazing. They're amazing. Whenever you doubt God, turn to these verses. Write them down somewhere. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Why? Why is God for us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If I had given you my son, there's nothing more precious you could ask me for. There's no greater act I could perform to show my feelings toward you than to give you my son. That's why Abraham was asked for his son. 
And his faith was such that he said, Father, whatever you want, I'll hold nothing back from you. Let us never doubt God's goodness to us. Let us never doubt anything we ask him for. Because you can't outdo this request. Everything else pales into comparison compared with what he went through to allow his son to suffer for us. And I believe we need a fresh revelation of that every day. Because if that doesn't convince us of the faithfulness of God, I don't know what will. It convinces me and it shows me afresh time and time again that God is with us, God is for us. He'll never step away from us. He already gave us his son. And the second pillar is his love. Maybe in your favorite verses, some of you said, yeah, it's the end of Romans 8. (laughs) Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Can the future, can the past, can things that are physical, can things that are spiritual, can anything? No, nothing. But Paul puts that in the context of going through suffering. It's a really difficult bit there in Romans 8 where he talks about being led as lambs to the slaughter. You're thinking, you're trying to encourage me with this stuff? Really? What Paul is saying is this. He's saying, look, your hope will only be strengthened when things come against it. That's the way it is, folks. Our faith in him and our hope is only strengthened when something comes to test it. Think of the line again. The line is kept taut, but it's the opposition. Something pulls on you. What do you do if you've got a line and you're hanging on to that and you're being pulled? What do you do? You grip that line like there's no tomorrow. Yeah? So when the testing comes, God is making you grip that line more than you were before. Sometimes we're holding it loosely, folks. You know why? Because we're looking around at other things. We all do it. We get distracted with things. And God says, okay, I'm just, I'm going to allow this thing to come in. Not because I don't love you, it's because I do love you. And you grab the rope and you pull it tight. I'm going to demonstrate it to you. Romans 5. There's a wonderful little succession of verses here where Paul is teaching us something so important for us in terms of our hope and understanding why sometimes things happen in our lives that are not good. You see, God has promised you a destination, but he's not promised you a comfortable ride. And as we mature, we start to see that more and more. Paul didn't have a comfortable ride. Shipwreck, stoning, beating is not a comfortable ride. Now, I'm not saying that's our destiny, but neither is it just to sit in comfort until eternity comes. If that were the case, we wouldn't be changed into the character of Christ. Our dependence upon him that we were created to enjoy, we wouldn't enjoy it because we'd just be depending upon created things again, which is the lie that we've thrown off. We've got rid of all that. So Paul says this in verse 2. He says, through him, that's Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice, here it comes, in hope 
of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Ah, oh, I wish I hadn't said that, Paul. <laughs> this is why, because knowing that suffering produces endurance. It's training, folks. And endurance produces character. Whose character? The character of Christ. Christ endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. He was anchored into eternity. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Did you see there we had two hopes? Did you spot that? Verse 2. We have, we rejoice in the hope of glory. And then we have the suffering and the perseverance and the character. And then we have hope again. Do you know that's a different kind of hope? One is a joyful hope that believes the promise. The second one is the hope that's done that, but has now been tested through circumstances that say the opposite. It's tested hope. Abraham had that kind of hope. Because circumstances said, you will never see the fulfillment of this promise. It's impossible. Only a God of miracles could do this. Great news. He can speak things into being that are not. He can give life to the dead. Even a dead womb, he could breathe life into it. Hallelujah. (laughs) We have two types of hope. Hope that is based on promise, but hope that is tested by contrary circumstances. And that's why contrary circumstances come. It's part of our maturity as believers. We don't like it, it's not comfortable, but for the joy set before us, we can endure it. Because the hope that we have will be one that's underpinned by God's faithfulness. That rests on God's love through the storm like we sang this morning. You know, the way you feel about him, a lot of that has come through the challenge, not in the easy times. I remember years ago I went to um, a gym with someone who was a professional bodybuilder. This is a long time ago, as you can tell. Not been a, I've not been near a gym since, I should point out. And he was t- explaining to me his routine, saying, I do all this and I do this. And, that. and then he said, and at the end, when I've gone through this whole routine, you've got all this blood pumping in your muscles and you get really tired. He said, now you're going to do this. And he gave me this stuff to do that was like, I mean, I felt like everything was on fire. And he said, but in this moment, you're d- something's happening in your muscles because you've got all the blood in there. And you'll do more in in those few minutes than you did in the previous 30 minutes in terms of the physical change in in, in your body. I didn't understand it, but I do see that sometimes we accelerate in our relationship with him, our understanding of his purposes and our part in them when we go through those challenges together. We have to pull harder on the line. Tested hope is a tauter line. And here's the thing. If you're not willing to go through that, how will you hold out hope to others? We can't. We're only people. We can only be people who have gone through the things of life, the storms of life, and can hold a hand out to those that don't know him and say, let me show you a better way. You're going to go through these things in life anyway, but go through them with him. Because something amazing is going to happen inside you. And in your weakest and lowest moments, you're going to find the strength of God coming to you because you have hope. That is the gospel that we carry. It's not a comfortable gospel sometimes. But it's God's total answer to man's total need. 
People are asking, who are we? What are we here for? Um, Where are we going? And I believe our gospel answers those questions. It doesn't give an answer to those questions. It gives the answer to those questions. They're good questions to ask. We shouldn't be afraid of those questions in society. But you know what we should be doing? We should be speaking up and saying, I know what we're here for. I know who I am in Christ Jesus. And I go through the storms of life because my life is anchored into eternity. It's a practical gospel, but it's the truth. And it cuts right through the lies of the enemy that's hoodwinked an entire planet. Lord, I want to thank you that we are those who have been set free. He, who set, who, he who's been set free by the Son is free indeed. And Lord, we thank you that through the Son, we have come into sonship. Thank you, Lord, that we've come back to what we were created to be. To be in a glorious, harmonious relationship with you. To be sustained by you every day. To enjoy your eternal nature. And to be a display of your glory to this entire world, Lord. Lord, our prayer is that you would make us more like Jesus. Our prayer, Lord, that you would lift our voices into this world. That we would be those who speak with our lives as well as our mouths. And that we speak with boldness the truth that you have brought us into, Lord. Lord, I pray as we begin to go through the book of Romans together, Lord, I pray for huge revelation in our hearts. I know, Holy Spirit, you have so much revelation to give us. And Lord, we respond to you right now to say, Lord, we are hungry to see more. We're hungry for you to fill our hearts, Lord, with eternal truth that will revolutionize the way we think, the way we act, and the way we carry out our mission. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise God. Thank you, folks. Thanks for joining us today. There's so much going on at Living Rock Church, and we'd love for you to be involved. Search for us online and get information about upcoming events and more great teaching. Visit www.livingrock.church or search for us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.